Welcome to the Sports Lawyers Association podcast. The SLA is a nonprofit, international, professional organization whose common goal is the understanding, advancement, and ethical practice of sports law. With over 1,000 current members consisting of practicing lawyers, law educators, law students, and other professionals with an interest in law relating to professional and amateur sports, the organization has a wonderful membership filled with experience, insight, and knowledge, giving podcast listeners a peek behind the curtain of the sports law world. For more information about the SLA, visit sportslaw.org. Today's episode is The Latest in International Soccer, an Examination of the Failed European Super League, where Patrick Riley discusses the rise and fall of the failed league with Katarina Pietlovich, an expert in breakaway leagues. Patrick is a partner with the law firm of Fagery Drinker, where he handles complex litigation and a wide variety of sports law matters, from consulting to high-stakes litigation. Katarina is a reader in sports law at Manchester Metropolitan University, author of EU Sports Law and Breakaway Leagues in Football, and an advisory board member at the Professional Tennis Players Association. And now, here's your host, Patrick Riley. Well, hi, everybody. My name is Patrick Riley, and uh, I'm a partner in the law firm of Fagri Drinker here in the United States, where my practice focuses on uh, complex litigation and sports law. And I'm privileged to be joined today by Dr. Katarina Pietlovich, uh, who is a reader in sports law at Manchester Law School in the United Kingdom. And Katarina, we're here today to talk about uh, international soccer. Um, and I guess before we get into the substance, Katarina, is it okay if I just refer to the sport uh, as soccer as, you know, we're mostly an American audience and obviously around the world in many places it's referred to as, as international football. But does that sound, does that sound agreeable to you? Uh, yeah, but for, for the next 20 minutes, I will live with it. Yes. <laughs> yeah, just with that provision only, right? So our particular focus today will be about the attempted European breakaway Super League that some of the top soccer clubs in the world tried to form within the last few months. You know, and, and Katarina, I thought it was fascinating to watch this occur from the sidelines and kind of see it all go into flames. But, you know, I do think our audience would benefit first by hearing your background, you know, and, and why you in particular are one of the preeminent uh, scholars in this area. So can you just kind of give us a little bit of background as to kind of how you know about this area and kind of how that in inform our conversation? Well, I do have a, a lower doctorate degree and a higher doctorate degree in law that deals exactly with this topic, which is uh, European Union sports law and breakaway leagues in football. And I wrote a book on that topic as well, uh, which was published in 2015. Uh, and that is the only book, uh, so it's unique on the market. There's nobody else has uh, a book on that topic. Uh, so I presume that uh, you're quite right in the sense that in the world, there's nobody who's been thinking about Super Leagues, breakaway leagues, the legality of uh, uh, both the Super League and the clauses preventing them. Yeah, of course, you were doing this well before it was uh, it was hip, right? I mean, you were doing this before there was even a hint of this. But I guess, you know, t take us back a few months ago and let's start at least that's, you know, when I first noticed it, you know, and you saw kind of reports around the world and publications, et cetera. You know, I guess maybe starting at the beginning, you know, who were these kind of top soccer clubs that were involved here, you know, and what exactly did they try and do? Well, for American audience, I guess uh, we have to repeat, even though some people will know uh, about the structures of European sports and, and football in particular, which are quite different than United States sports. Uh, in U.S., there are closed leagues, 
nobody can uh, fall out technically and nobody can really be promoted from that league. But in Europe, the leagues are open and there are lower leagues and there are some middle class leagues and there are some top leagues which are pretty fluent so that uh, teams are playing, you know, uh, for instance, from the lower league, uh, top clubs will play so-called playoffs with the bottom leagues and they can switch places. So the club can technically progress all the way to, to, to the top. And this is a, you know, uh, a part of the pyramid structure in which there is one regulator, which is UEFA in Europe, uh, and uh, they have regulatory monopoly. But in European context, that UEFA also organizes uh, all the competitions that are cross-border com- competitions in Europe. Um, anything that is not strictly confined to one nation, uh, it will be organized by UEFA. So they do hold regulatory monopoly and the commercial monopoly over the cross-border competition organization in Europe. Um, and in this uh, case, uh, if clubs uh, want to join UEFA competitions, which are extremely lucrative commercially, um, they have to uh, be the best clubs in their national leagues and they have to transfer all the uh, commercial rights to UEFA, who then sells uh, that to highest bidders as per territory and uh, the distributes, pro- distributes profits back to the clubs, but also uses a part of the top those, those profits to support social uh, and uh, solidarity basically causes. Um, they engage in vertical and horizontal so-called solidarity and the part of profits go to the clubs that didn't qualify for its competitions and the part of profits go to grassroots infrastructure in the countries and so on and so forth. So why, why did you, these, uh, who are these clubs that were involved in the Super League? Those are the elite clubs in Europe who are the richest uh, by far, who are in fact, running the European Club Association, which is supposed to represent really all the European clubs, but it doesn't. It represents elite because the board is structured so that elite is taking decisions for the benefit of elite while ignoring really everybody else's needs. And uh, in, in this situation, uh, the governance structures uh, in, of UEFA have allowed and have recognized that uh, European Club Association is the representative association of the clubs and they have allowed them to run club competitions committee, essentially, which is a UEFA committee approving the new competitions in Europe. And in this case, elite clubs actually thought we can do better. We can just separate ourselves from these uh, UEFA structures and we can run our own business uh, as business. We will uh, find the wealthy investors, which they did. It was a JP Morgan and so it was It was basically Super League consisting of the elite uh, and who thought that they can do commercially better. They were forced into it uh, by several uh, several you know things. And one is basically their own fault, uh, overspending on, you know, the sky high salaries of players and on transfer fees between when they're buying players from other clubs. And uh, so the overspending combined with a uh, with pan- pandemic uh, effect or, or the effect of the pandemics on the industry uh, have proven really um, to put too much pressure on the clubs who just wanted to make more money elsewhere. Um, and uh, before we thought that the reason for the Super League, why now, why now, was uh, the combination of that uh, uh, effect of the pand- pandemic and the combination of the fact that 
clubs always wanted to really break or were always threatening to break away uh, since 98, probably. They were, they were constantly, you know, posing this threat. Uh, but that was always to make UEFA uh, engage in some concessions and give them some uh, benefits, uh, such as more say in the governance, such as uh, more, more money uh, to create rules for them and so on. So it never got never got as close as it as it did now, right? It never really got as close as it did now. It did in '98 when the clubs actually had a very serious plan, which consisted of uh, you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of carefully planned financial marketing uh, information and uh, uh, the legal info and the competition format and, and so on. This Super League was planned practically, uh, it looked like it was planned overnight and it looked like, you know, something that has absolutely not been thought through on many on many levels because they did not engage with stakeholders. They did not acknowledge the fact that European sports are not American sports and that European competition law is not Sherman Act in United States, which is antitrust law equivalent of the EU competition law. So in this situation, you know, they did not do, uh, obviously, that's why I personally didn't really know why did JP Morgan decide to really invest into something without doing their uh, research uh, properly in terms of uh, whether or not such Super League that is closed practically to other clubs would even be allowed under EU competition law, which it probably in all likelihood wouldn't. That's interesting. Well, so I want to stop you there. So you've talked about kind of closed versus open and and clubs moving up and down depending on their performance. And as you you pointed out, you know, the the leagues in the United States, you know, are are largely closed. I'm not sure back there if there's any open. And so what you you what you meant by that essentially is, you know, essentially you hear that in uh, in Europe and elsewhere where you have promotion and relegation. Is that right? In other words, you know, if a if a club or a team is at the bottom, you know, uh, they could be relegated to the next league below it. And the three top clubs or two or three or whatever the number is from that lower league could be promoted to the next league. Is that right? Yes. They switch places uh, after they play together uh, in, in a small kind of playoffs. Uh, and uh, whoever wins that, uh, you know, the club will either stay in their league or be promoted or relegated. So depending really on the results. So yeah, yeah, that makes uh, European sports quite uh, different and European culture uh, and the culture of consumers uh, is such that um, you saw the response from fans to such proposal was quite um, yeah, quite strong, I would say, because uh, they did not save any words to say that, look, we are completely against this. This is going to ruin the traditions. This is going to ruin the culture and we are not, we are not uh, for this at all. But the Super League are absolutely taught that they can weather the, the you know, storm and still do whatever they intended and that they will be successful. Um, and it lasted only for 48 hours, that plan. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable, the, the, the backlash. So in other words, they, they wanted to for, you know, form this closed league with just these you know, quote, premier teams, or at least obviously as, as they thought, these clubs. So why don't you run over the list just for our audience of who these teams were that were going to be part of the Super League, and then we can kind of get into, you know, what the backlash was and, and why it ultimately failed. 
Well, there were 15 clubs planned, 12 clubs were initially in the Super League. We don't know who the three were. I mean, right now we do, but back then uh, we didn't know who. But the 12 clubs, I don't know if I can really remember every single one. There were six English clubs, uh, including uh, Chelsea, Arsenal, uh, Manchester uh, City, um, or Manchester United. Um, and so the six most successful English club, there was... Uh, uh, yeah, Tottenham, I think, maybe, and Chelsea, yeah, Liverpool. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so Spanish clubs were involved, and, uh, well, they still kind of are, and then there, was, uh, there were Italian clubs as well. German clubs uh, notably did not participate, and French clubs did not participate in this, even though they do have uh, clubs that are on par with those elite clubs. Uh, they did not participate for different reasons, perhaps in Germany, because uh, the clubs are fan-owned. There is an ownership that is 50 plus 1%. So fans are really deciding ultimately, possibly, you know, whether or not uh, there will be such participation in Super League or not. Uh, and uh, in France, uh, there was a P uh, PSG, Paris Saint-Germain, uh, that uh, did not participate um, because, well, right now, uh, uh, Paris Saint-Germain is really, that the guy is heading uh, European Club Association after these clubs left the structures um, and there was there were some other interests involved such as sponsored they are uh, um, sponsored by by the company that well I'm not quite sure really uh, about the the details of that but there was some reason why they didn't of a commercial nature so so you would have uh, Spanish and English clubs participating in something like this and uh, any serious super league would really need more than just three participating nations you know if you think about it. Yeah, like you said, I mean, you've got, you know, Bayern Munich and, you know, extremely, you know, successful and famous clubs in Germany, PSG. And, you know, these these are, you know, these have been Champions League winners, right, in the past, you know, five to ten years, you know, filled with some of the biggest superstars in the world. You know, and that's obviously not to say anything else of the other countries that, you know, wouldn't be represented either with just those five nations. So I think your point is really well taken. Right, there were there were foreign owners that uh, well, three out of six English clubs were uh, owned by uh, uh, somebody from uh, the the states. Uh, they were uh, clubs owned by uh, Russian oligarchs, and that kind of made also perhaps the difference because for the owners of these clubs, the European traditions really didn't mean much. What they saw is that European market is saturated. Uh, that they cannot earn more from it because the subscription only in England, if you want to watch one league, you have to subscribe for Amazon, for Sky and for BT. And it can run in, uh, you know, uh, a couple of hundred dollars, let's say, to, to uh, translate it in the US uh, dollars. Wow. Uh, if you want to actually watch all of these games in one league, because, yeah. Of, of the structure of the broadcasting rights, the sales and ownership, um, the... Uh, next thing is that um, uh, they thought to, to do is to expand the markets and perhaps use the fact that football is becoming more and more popular in the United States. And sorry, uh, by football, of course, I meant soccer. Soccer is becoming more and more popular in the United States and uh, in, in Asian countries as well. And Asian market is huge, absolutely huge. And that is where they saw that you know, they already were quite successful, some English clubs, in actually marketing to those Asian countries. Um, so they thought that that is where the expansion will come from, the commercial expansion, that is. So the, the, the plan had been 
based completely on commercial considerations, which for, you know, American viewership and for uh, American traditions would be like, yeah, why not? Right. Well, so you, you mentioned it only lasted 48 hours. Just 48 hours, yeah. Yeah, so 48 hours. So then what happened, I guess, within that 48 hours? It seemed like a media blitz, uh, at least here in the United States, but it seemed like the fallout was was uh, pretty severe and quick. So, you know, tell us kind of, you know, why did this fail, you know, and what happened in those 48 hours that kind of uh, made things turn so sideways? A lot of things happened in such short time. Uh, they, they came out, they announced uh, that they are going to do this, and there was a backlash from pretty much everybody. There was not a single stakeholder that you could find that supported this Super League. And uh, in particular, and most importantly, perhaps, some politicians started interfering, saying that they will legislate, and that would be in, Uni- in the United Kingdom. Boris Johnson was saying, we will legislate in order to prevent this. Uh, later on, we uh, kind of uh, found out that clubs were consulting Boris Johnson, the, pr- uh, the prime minister of the UK, uh, on, on the Super League, and that they had conversations with him. Wow. Uh, yes, the entire thing was really uh, uh, reaching uh, the political level. It wasn't really just anymore a sporting issue. It became uh, highly political because you heard politicians giving statements and you heard even Amnesty International you know, like uh, say something about this. Or, um, I, I don't really remember the details anymore. It was, it was in April and, as I said, a lot of things happened. Why did it fail is because it was never going to succeed in the first place. They did not do research on the legal environment. They did not consult stakeholders. Even their logo looked like a child drew it in five minutes on a computer. So there was no sense that anybody had given a serious thought to this. And the clubs, after they uh, um, uh, called it off, uh, also... um, uh, had uh, three separate lawsuits in three countries because UEFA was threatening to ban them from domestic competitions. And uh, their national associations were threatening that if you continue with the Super League thing, we are not going to allow you to play at home. And that is also a big market for them. So they, um, uh, they were facing some sanctions of that kind. And they filed lawsuits in three separate jurisdictions where the clubs come from, Italy, Spain, and England, uh, to ask for injunctive relief or, um, or interim order, as it's also known. And, uh, so the um, court in Madrid uh, issued such injunction, and that was ex parte, meaning that there, only, that there was no defendant present. And uh, right now, uh, in Europe, there is a possibility for national courts to forward the questions of uh, nature that uh, brings a new questions of law uh, to European Court of Justice, which is essentially a Supreme Court of Europe. So the questions are now being uh, really in front of European Court of Justice. And once European Court of Justice makes... uh, a decision on whether or not UEFA's threats uh, uh, and uh, the entire thing was legal, it will affect the whole of Europe, that ruling. If Madrid court came up with a decision, it would only affect uh, Spain and be valid only for Spanish territory. Right. But this way, we will have a sort of European precedent, even though there's no strict system of precedence, this will be something that will provide guidance and uh, I do expect that uh, the regulatory monopoly that UEFA has as a gatekeeper uh, for the organizational market who issues licenses to the participants, 
uh, that that will be maintained. And I expect the court to confirm that UEFA can have a regulatory monopoly and the power to issue licenses to its own competitors on the organizational market, even though it's a conflict of interests. Uh, and the, the conflict of interest is supposed to be managed then by having a condition for access uh, and for issuing the license that are non-discriminatory, proportionate, and objective in comparison to its own competitions that it organizes. So that would be, um, that, that is the mistake of the clubs. And when do you expect the decision, Katerina? But within a year or two, perhaps. There, there is no strict deadline, but within a year or two, we should expect something. Um, and that is the mistake now that uh, you can already perhaps uh, guess that clubs shouldn't have just taken the ball and said, we are going home. Uh, they should have reached out to UEFA and asked, what are the conditions for accessing this market? Because UEFA did not have it transparently set as they should, but that didn't give clubs the right to jump the entire licensing system. So they should have approached UEFA and asked, what are the conditions we want to form such and such league? And the league that they are supposed to form is supposed to be open, so based on system of promotion and relegation. And then UEFA is supposed to come up with those proportion, non-discriminatory objective criteria, and clubs are supposed to comply with it and get their license and then do their thing and have their Super League and then have power over their commercial rights entirely in their hands, uh, while contributing perhaps about 8% of profits to, uh, to UEFA as, uh, as do UEFA's own competitions. Uh, and uh, you see why they uh, they fail because they just ignore the regulatory requirement, they ignore the legal environment, uh, they ignore uh, stakeholders, and pretty much the common sense. Yeah. So it, again, it was all fascinating to watch, and I think the legal ramifications, as you've discussed, are are also really interesting to kind of monitor, especially you know once we get a decision, like you said, in the next year or so. You know, I want to quickly touch before we kind of wrap up about next steps on, uh, you know, what the fan side kind of the reaction was, you know, I think it was, it was interesting. You talked about, you know, you couldn't really find a stakeholder that was in support of it, but at least in my, uh, observance, it really seemed like, uh, perhaps surprisingly to some, especially in the United States, the fan revolt or the fan reaction from those clubs that attempted to break away was pretty significant. Can you kind of talk about, you know, what that was and, uh, you know, kind of how that drove clubs to perhaps, you know, do an about face? Yeah, you, you could see fans turning on their own clubs because they didn't want this. They didn't want that Super League, which is premised on 20 clubs or, or 15 clubs playing each other in a closed league, practically, and uh, being uh, something like uh, uh, the, the leagues in the United States. Um uh, so the fans organized uh, protests. Uh, they uh, occupied the stadia and uh, they protested uh, physically. They protested in uh, through their organized um, associations. Uh, we saw some statements from these uh, quite uh, influential supporters organizations, again, that were very much against this idea of Super League. And uh, at the same time, uh, that was all in Europe. There was really not many... Uh, supporters in Europe that were in favor of it. But uh, I also saw uh, some uh, 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 fans in uh, Africa and fans in Asia that were very much, you know, excited by it. Like, yeah, why not? 
So the idea, you know, of a closed Super League in Europe seems to excite everybody else but Europeans. <laughs> because, again, I think Europeans value, value that tradition, value the fact that we have to keep the dream alive for the small clubs that they can one day progress to the top of their league and that they can one day move into a bigger league and that they can perhaps uh, uh, through some superior management and perhaps some richer owners and richer investors that that might appear, uh, perhaps progress to the top of that league. And that keeping that dream alive seems to be extremely important for uh, for European uh, fans that uh, and for for those that really support smaller and medium sized clubs because not everybody's Manchester United and Chelsea and uh, Madrid. Uh, there are plenty of small clubs that you've never heard about uh, who have their loyal fan base, and these are the you know the so to speak um, the neighborhood clubs. This is where you grew up, perhaps playing football, and perhaps your father did, and perhaps you know some of the. Um, friends or family, and that is the stadium you, you were going to, to support your club. And you do want them to, you know, not become a farm only for the, uh, you know, players to, to feed into the higher leagues. Uh, you do want to have the dream of one day playing the big guys and being one of them. So I guess uh, from the fan point of view, it depends in which area of the world you ask people what they thought of it. Yeah, but I think you make a really good point, right? You know, that uh, having that tradition and having that, you know, kind of having things settled on the field, uh, you know, where clubs can kind of, again, be promoted and relegated depending on their own performance. You know, obviously, I can see how that would resonate with, with fans of different clubs. So I want to conclude with talking about, you know, what we think happens next. You know, is, is the Super League idea dead? It will resurrect itself in a couple of years you know, I did just see kind of to your point earlier, uh, and it seems like articles are still coming out, you know, every day, right? We're still getting kind of some of the fallout on this. I just saw an article, I think it was two days ago from Sky Sports talking about uh, Juventus, Barcelona and Real Madrid, three of the clubs that were involved uh, being admitted to next season's Champions League, despite their involvement in the uh, Super League project. So uh, it seems like there's still some kind of ongoing dialogue you know, going on. But, you know, what do you think kind of happens next? You know, where do we stand on the idea of the Super League? What happens next is really very much dependent on the decision of the court uh, uh, in Luxembourg, the European Court of uh, Justice, um, on the questions that were forwarded to it by, by Madrid court. And uh, nine clubs out of 12 that uh, started uh, Super League and that quit um, uh, immediately. So out of those 12 clubs, three are still involved with the Super League Free still kind of didn't give up the idea, which is when UEFA started a disciplinary process uh, against them, which was now stopped due to the fact that uh, the Madrid court had served the interim order to their uh, office in Switzerland, saying that um, they are therefore prevented from uh, engaging in any uh, well disciplinary sanctions against the club until such time as the court had had this uh, chance to decide on the substance of the case, which can be quite different, obviously. Uh, then, then in, so interim relief is just a very temporary measure that doesn't say anything about the outcome of the case. So the uh, the reason why you saw them now playing in the Champions League and that they are going to continue playing in UEFA Championship is just because the UEFA was forced to stay proceedings by the fact uh, that the court had uh, such ruling. 
So we should get some more definitive idea once this European court rules. Yeah, yeah that, that definitely. Uh, the ruling will settle a lot of things, uh, both legally and in regard to this particular Super League. Um, uh, but uh, in the future, you can expect this, this idea is not dead. This is something, as I said, existed since 98. Uh, and uh, the clubs will use it. Uh, perhaps this was just testing the market, testing the waters, seeing what the courts say, and uh, nothing else. Who knows? Because, as I said, it wasn't really a serious proposal. It did not have any detailed planning. It did not have any consultation, marketing, uh, or, or any other strategy. Uh, it was quite badly done from the point of view of uh, PR as well. Yeah, interesting. We will see more of it. We will see that the idea is not dead. We will see the uh, threats and we will perhaps even one day see a Super League, but such Super League will not be anything like the one that we have seen proposed now in April because that one cannot pass the legal uh, scrutiny. Uh, it will have to be Open League. It will have to receive UEFA regulatory approval. Well, it will certainly be fascinating to watch things play out, both in the kind of the, the public eye, but also in the courts. And obviously, you'll be there to, to make sure that we're all updated for it. So, Katarina, I want to thank you for uh, educating us about you know, all things related to the attempted uh, Super League. And uh, hopefully, we'll be able to talk to you again soon once uh, we have further developments in this. Thank you, too, for hosting, Patrick. And of course, we'll talk again.